Welcome to the Latter-day Contemplation Presents Come Follow Me podcast. I'm your co-host, Abdul Haq, also known as Christopher Hurtado. I'm also co-host of the Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me and Latter-day Contemplation podcasts. In this podcast, I'm joined by my co-host and Sufi master, Sufi Al-Hajj Daoud, also known as Dr. David Peck. Dr. Peck is also the host of the Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic podcast. On this podcast, we're sharing an actual master-disciple dialogue on scripture with little to no editing. I'm your co-host, Sufi Al-Hajj Dawood, also known as Dr. David Peck. The Sufi path is a spiritual, mystical, and contemplative practice often described as a journey. Universal Sufism is not a religion. Rather, universal Sufism is a spiritual path that welcomes persons of all religions or no religion at all. Our path is open to all, welcomes all, loves all. Sufi scripture study begins with a de-educational process that speaks directly to the souls of saints and Sufis and their scriptures. This study sets aside mere ethical or doctrinal readings through what Sufis call unlearning. This Sufi mystical approach enables one to see the scriptures afresh through spiritual eyes. We invite you to join our unfolding dialogue. Let the journey begin. It's good to be back with you once again, Ya Abdul Haq. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. In fact, I look forward to all of our conversations. And so uh, why don't you take a moment and introduce us to the assigned readings in Come Follow Me for today and uh, the particular verses you've selected. It's your turn, so tell me, tell me all about it. All right. It's good to be with you too, Sheikh. And I have here in front of me that this week's reading is 2 Corinthians 8-13. through 13. As for my selected verses, they are 2 Corinthians 12 two through four. Okay. Just uh, how do you want to start? Do you want to uh, just read them and then we can kind of frame our discussion? Let's do that. I'll read from the NRSV translation. This is again, 2 Corinthians 12, two through four. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. Okay, so there's several things I think that read different than the King James Version, and I think they clarify it, but uh, why did you select these verses? What, What about them may have stood out to you? A couple of things stood out to me. The first thing that stood out to me is the third heaven bit. The second thing is that which can be heard but not told. And that not only that it can't be told, well, it says it are not to be told and is not permitted to repeat. Which is different from the idea that one cannot tell, meaning that that that, that which is one might want to tell is ineffable and therefore cannot be put into words. Here it's said permitted. And, and I think I know from my own background that this indicates that, uh, in fact, I think the King James Version uses, if I remember right, the word unlawful. And, uh, you know, that can be taken many, many ways. I mean, unlawful can mean that God said don't do it or or whatever. So I I think that's language we're going to have to investigate. And uh, what about the entirety of it? In other words, uh, Paul is talking about something exceptionally unusual, it seems seems to me. Did that attract your attention as well, this sort of idea of of, uh, going to some kind of heaven uh, in the body or out of the body? You know, there's this perplexity of where he, it seems to be perplexed as to where he is and even in what condition he is. Right. I took that for granted, you know, that obviously, yes, this spoke to me because he's having a mystical experience, right? Something that he cannot say. Well, he cannot say, right? He cannot put it into words, whether it's because he's not allowed to, whether it's because it can't be put into words. It seems that he's not allowed to. He's obviously having some kind of maybe out of body experience. It's not really clear whether he's present in this experience in his body or in his spirit 
or something like that. And then, of course, the idea that he, well, I've been talking about Paul as though this is Paul we're talking about. He says it's someone he knows. I don't believe him. I think he's talking about himself. It's widely accepted that it's that he's talking about himself, but he just got off of the chapter before uh, and earlier verses saying, "I don't want to boast." This whole this whole epistle is how to avoid boasting, and uh, so it, that gets us into a whole set of other linguistic problems, right? Where where we can't even talk straight up because we're afraid it'll be taken as boasting. It makes me think. Maybe uh, the people in Corinth or something are saying, well, Paul never shuts up about himself effectively, right? That they're, they're saying, oh, he tends to boast a lot. And so Paul may be, or it may be stylistic of the age. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not certain, but I think you're right. And I, I don't know anybody who is a serious Bible scholar uh, that, that says, this is not Paul, it's some other human being. There's one other thing that stood out to me now that I look at it again, and that is that not only does he say he knows a person, but he says he knows a person in Christ. Excellent. Excellent. This person in Christ, uh, because I was, uh, I was just taking a look at, uh, I think it's Acts 12 uh, I was in today, and uh, it talks about um, Barnabas uh, going to uh, Damascus with Saul, uh, to find Saul, and then uh, ending up in Antioch. And while in Antioch, um, the, uh, he says the first time they called themselves Christians. That's my interpretation of what was said there, is that, they were, that Antioch was the first place where these, the believers called themselves Christians. And I've always wondered when, when the self-appellation of Christians um, came into being. And so uh, this person in Christ, I wondered if it, if that means a Christian in some sort of sectarian sense. It seems that the early community is, uh, there's a question about whether they're a form of Judaism or, uh, or if they are now a, a separate sect within Judaism or if they are now uh, emerging as a separate religion. And so I thought maybe person in Christ might reflect what this identity issue. I have another thought, and that is what if... I'm not looking at the Greek. I'm thinking about how it works, though, in terms of Greek grammar. And I'm just wondering if what this is saying is something rather like, I know a person who 14 years ago, what happened to them happened to them in Christ. See, that's the other act. I think you're, that's exactly, uh, I think, the other part of this issue, person in Christ. I, I think it's an excellent observation. Yes, absolutely. Good. Good. There's a couple of things that occurred to me. Maybe we can talk about it in addition. Okay. You know, this idea of thir- third heavens, uh, one of them is, and person in Christ was, was a big one because Christian is, uh, you know, often as new religion, religious sects or new religions begin to emerge, they don't really distinguish themselves from existing religions in the area. They don't think of themselves like, well, I'm going to start a new religion. Uh, and uh, this is Fred Donner's point on Muhammad, right? He calls the early Islamic movement the believer's movement, not Islam. Fred Donner's argument summed up very quickly is uh, that what we would call Islam doesn't really begin to take root for, for probably 70, 80 years after Muhammad dies. It's uh, in Damascus where they start saying there is no God but uh, Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That seems to be added later to say, oh, by the way, Muhammad's our prophet. I'm reminded that as, you know, before Christians shows up in the Bible, in the New Testament, the, the way of Christianity is called the way. And before the way of Christianity, there was the halakha, right, for the Jews, which is translated the way. And over in, in uh, the Tao Te Ching, we read about the way, right? The Tao is the way. In Islam, we have Sharia, which means the way. So that it looks like that's, <laughs> that's a constant, right? The way. The way. Yeah, this, this idea of self-identifying as apart from existing systems or existing thought, I think that um, what we find is, in my, in my estimation, um, that a lot of, people credited later with founding religions are, are really 
reforming within their own tradition. They, they probably see themselves as, as uh, it adjusting an existing uh, tradition. Maybe, maybe not, but I, I, always, I always wonder about that and that they're not, they're not really worried about forming a new movement. Uh, certainly, if we look at Joseph Smith, uh, in the first vision, uh, I, I used to ask my BYU-Idaho students, I'd say, well, um, what exactly did Joseph Smith learn from the first vision account in, in uh, the Pearl of Great Price? And, you know, they, I, in fact, asked, what question did Joseph Smith ask? Well, they, he asked which church is true, and I said, oh, can you find that for me in the text, please? Because I don't think he said asked which church is true. I think he had three particular sects of Christianity in mind when he walked in there, Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians. And uh, later on he tells his mother, that I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. He seems to be limited to the, the sects that are in and around Palmyra that his family is worried about. He doesn't ask the bigger question which church, church is true. And then I'd say, well, what was he told? Well, he was told that none of them are true, no church, no other churches are true, and that he has to wait around because he's going to found a new church. And I asked, would you please find that in the text for me? And of course, that's not in, in the account either. And so we have a tendency to project backwards our own, our own uh, sort of pr a presentist or a presentism, uh, a presentist event where we project backwards our understanding back onto Joseph Smith. And I think that happens with Muhammad. I think that that happens with uh, Confucius. I think that that happens with Buddha. All of a sudden we start reading the words of Buddha and wow, isn't that amazing? He was going to start a new church. And, and when you actually try to deal with the text, that's not necessarily what's going on. Right, and the new the the new Buddhists, right? The first Buddhists were Hindus, right? <laughs> Buddhism comes comes out of Hinduism, and when it comes to Joseph Smith, what I remember is that he was told all their creeds are an abomination to me. Now I read it all their creeds, not all their creeds. I know most read it all their creeds are an abomination to me, but I'm reading it all their creeds are an abomination to me. Well, that would make it even more mystical because it would suggest that the solution to his dilemma is not in getting the right creeds down. You know, the, the problem is they got the wrong articles of faith, and if they had the right articles of faith, then they'd be fine too. What, what you're suggesting, and I tend to agree with it, is that a creedal religion has problems because uh, the risk you take is you stop exploring the divine you stop seeking the divine because you think you've already got it figured out and the magic words are i'm reminded of ibn arabi who said something i'm paraphrasing something to the effect of we shouldn't get too uh, attached to our idea of god we've talked about the god ideal and our own idea of god and in, in the previous episode i think and and that's because then we will not be open to actually discovering God or God revealing himself to us, right? We, we wouldn't, he wouldn't look like what we expect. And so then we're not noticing, right? Yeah. And, and in Sufi terms, exactly what you're talking about here. And of course, Hazrat Inayat Khan in the early 1900s uh, really clarified that for the West, because as he came from India to, to bring Sufism uh, to the West, he was finding that there was this, all this kind of creedal discussion going on, you know, orthodoxy, a lot of orthodox discussion going on. And, and I think that uh, his clarification in English and other languages of the uh, Western languages of the God ideal was aimed at the fact that he, he's saying, well, a lot of what's happening here from a mystical point of view is you, you're having issues with um, the God ideal. And uh, of course, with Ibn Arabi and many, many, many other Sufis um, throughout its thousands years uh, existence have referred to this process as the self-disclosure of God. That, that it is a revelation because we can't, we can't think our way up to God. We cannot believe our way up to God. Instead, it has to be a self-disclosure of the divine. And then, of course, the deeper disclosure is the self-disclosure of the soul to the ego. Mm. 
there's two divinities being disclosed going through self-disclosure the divine uh, and my soul and so the union of those two self-disclosures and i wonder this person in christ in in verse uh, two of our selection second corinthians 12 2 where he says i know a person in christ uh, and, we, and it seems to be Paul without much debate, but that Paul is just had something happen to him that taught Paul about Paul, taught Paul's his pharisaical sort of ego self, his externalization about Paul, his Saul, his Saul. I, that's it. I, I wonder if Saul has finally met Paul. Oh, I see. I'm reminded too of Pete Enns. I heard Pete Enns on the Maxwell Institute podcast many years ago. It's been a few years. He was promoting his book, The The Sin of Certainty was the title, The Sin of Certainty, subtitled Why God Wants Our Trust More Than Our Correct Belief. And, And I'm thinking he probably had correct in scare quotes, right? Something like that. Right, telling us, you know, be careful, uh, be careful of the the trap of orthodoxy, the belief that uh, one already knows something, and that uh, that knowledge is uh, is what we believe in. Again, my view of a faith crisis is this c- a collision between experience and expectation. We create the God ideal expectation, and then our experience runs into it and so we i think we actually set ourselves up for faith crises in fact i think i think it's very normal because we create a vision of the divine a vision of jesus a vision of my dad a vision of my bishop that is this inconsistent with the reality of of who they are and and then lo and behold that's revealed to me you see there's this wonderful disclosure that reveals it but then then i say well i i i'm done with my dad because my vision of my dad was not what he actually turned out to be and therefore we're we're done or i don't find any good in my religion anymore because guess what uh i i i believe my bishop was supposed to be everything it represented my 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 church and bishop didn't agree with me or bishop did something i thought was uh you know whatever horrible and therefore it's all over it's like this binary whereas for the mystic we expect the faith crisis does that make sense and so i think that uh, our our own ideas get in the way of our own spiritual progress we believe in them just a little bit too much I've learned to to be excited about a faith crisis or a, a faith transition. I don't even call it a faith crisis anymore. After Riley and I interviewed Janice Bangler on what we were calling faith crises, she disabused us of this term and, and gave us the term faith transition because we're all in faith transition at all times. At least, can I say we ought to be? You know, maybe maybe we ought to be. I'm reminded too that we have our creeds, right, as Latter Day Saints in in the Articles of Faith and etc. Right, because it doesn't stop there. There's Mormon doctrine, what have you, right? And I'm also reminded of John, going back to in Christ. John in the Gospel of John, he likes to talk about this a lot, right? He he really talks about in Christ and whatever he means by that. I I must admit. I don't always know what John is talking about, and I don't always always know what Paul is talking about. If I'm honest, right? And so, in Christos, right? What does that mean in Christ? Well, I think that the, you're back to ineffability. I think again, and and uh, it sure seems like these verses are an encapsula- encapsulation of uh, the deep spiritual experience of Paul, and at the same time. Paul's inability to tell us what it meant because he doesn't even know if he's in his body or out of his body. There's no context. Um, Where am I? I don't know. What am I? Well, I'm not really sure, uh, but I know I have this experience. Well, what was the experience? Well, I don't know how to tell you. And so I think that uh, this is is a prime example of of, uh, ineffabilities. It occurs to me that what we want to do with our creedal statements, our articles of faith, our creeds, our statements of belief, right, is to maintain boundaries, right? It's about maintaining boundaries. And, and in fact, we want to put boundaries, you know, set up these, these limits, right, to God. God is, you know, fits between here and here. 
God is like this and we've got God all figured out, right? God is like this and he's not like that. And we've got him all figured out. And I just think it limits us. It certainly limits God, which doesn't make any sense in my understanding of, of God. And so I'm interested in exploring beyond those boundaries and and opening myself up to this to God's self-unveiling. Yeah, the self-disclosure is very powerful, and I'm glad that you, that's what you want to do because that that uh, impetus to toward self-disclosure of the divine is also the impetus towards self-disclosure of your soul to your ego, and you finally find out who you are for your own self, and so. Uh, I wanted to um, just take a moment then and go to another phrase in, in verse 2 where, uh, or is it for, yeah, it says, I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up. Caught up to me is, is, is very much a mystical or a Sufi expression. Um, and I, I sometimes relate a, a hadith and, you know, stories or, or sayings of the prophet are, you know, they abound within the Islamic world, and there's all kinds of rules of determining which are good and which are not. I tend to read them and say, huh, does this inform me or not inform me? I don't tend to read them as like, does this prove that Muhammad was or was not uh, a prophet of God? Instead, I say, well, what's this story telling me? And it says that, uh, you know, Muhammad took his night journey, which is where uh, in the night, Muhammad mounted a, a, a beast. We don't really know what it was supposed to look like. I guess he tries to describe it called a burak. And the burak takes him to Jerusalem and he sets his foot on, on uh, where the dome of the rock is at. And Muhammad is taken up into the heavens and he sees uh, seven degrees of glory. And it's very similar to what we're reading here. And then when he returned, uh, he knew he had to tell about it, but he knew that when he told about it, he would be mocked by the Meccans who opposed him in Mecca. So on his return, one of his main enemies, who's just simply called Abu Jahl, asked Muhammad if he could stand in the air. Muhammad responded, he couldn't. I can't just lift myself up in the air. Abu Jahl countered that if he could not stand in the air in front of them, how could he possibly go all the way up to the heavens? And Muhammad's response was, I didn't say that I went up. I said that I was taken. And this notion of being taken, of being caught up, is, I think, uh, the language of mystical experience and the language of Sufism, so that, that he, he says, this was, you think this was in my control? This is not in my control. And so, uh, at any rate, I, I found that caught up languages like I was taken. And I know in my own experiences, I don't initiate them. I've heard the this beast Burak described as a, a flying steed. <clears throat> he is said, Muhammad yeah. is said to have gone from Mecca to Jerusalem and then ascended the seven heavens in one night. I've also heard the, the, the heavens, right, described as seven or three variously. And I, I've never really... Well, I shouldn't say I never. I, I don't take that literally, right? I, I, I see it right. described as three. I see it described as seven. I see even Neoplatonism uh, divided up, you know, it, the, the levels of reality in Neoplatonism divided up into three, but then further subdivided and, and could be seven or more, right? By the way, Neoplatonism, that's another example. Uh, the Neoplatonism, what we call Neoplatonism, starts with with Plotinus, and Plotinus didn't consider him and himself a neo-anything. He was just a Platonist in his mind, uh, one more founder of something who didn't intend to found anything, right? And then Abu Jahl, uh, to me, I think of, not of hell, you know, Gehenna, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, right? I think of Jahl as ignorance, right? So here's someone who's mm. ignorant. He's, he's oh, yes. Abu Jahl, oh, yeah. the father of ignorance, asking Muhammad, ignorance. you can't, you know, saying... He, he's asking, but it's rhetorical, right? He's saying, you can't go up to heaven. You can't fly. Um, and that's ignorance, right? Ignorance of how it works, yeah. uh, where you're taken up. And, and I, I think of my own experience that there was a time, at least one time that I can think of, and there have been multiple experiences like this, but one of them in particular, meditating, where I felt myself 
well, uh, how to put it? <laughs> it? It wasn't myself. The point is that somehow I wasn't there and then I was again. And it's only when I was again that I realized in that moment that I, I had been gone. I had a similar experience this morning sitting, uh, writing uh, in a public place where when I looked down and put my pen to paper, everything disappeared. And then when I, you know, when I wrote a period and I looked up, everything came back again, right? Something like that. So I, I know that I can't chase after that though, right? It's not something, even when I go writing, you know, when I go to write, if I'm conscious of this, it doesn't happen right away. I have to get into the flow of writing before it happens again. And coming out of that experience in meditation, it, when you realize, and it, it's an exciting moment, right? Of, oh, wait a minute, I was just, I, I want to go back there. Let me go back there. And you just can't make it happen. It's not something you can choose. It's something you can't chase after. It has to come to you. You have to be taken up. Right? It's a place not of ego. Let's put it that way. So because it's a place not of ego, I, i.e. ego, doesn't really know it, right? It's, it's the knowing comes upon return. It's when I lift up my head from writing. It's when I come to the realization that I, that the ego was just gone. I don't know how else to put it. And then you're back and the world is back. I had the same experience rock climbing where everything just disappeared and I flashed this climb from, you know, I mean, from the moment of embole to I reached the top and, and this, I flashed this route and there was nothing, right? There was no, there was no me versus rock, right? Or me as distinct from the rock, right? It was just this flow experience, right? Whether it's writing, whether it's climbing, whether it's meditating, this place of this eyeless place, this egoless place, not I as in the one I see through, but the one I consider myself, which is not myself. I would certainly agree that it's no place I know, because again, I only know when I've come back, right? I don't know where I was when I was gone. And as for time, well, yeah, it sort of stands still. I mean, I was, I was late leaving the place where I was sitting writing, you know, where I had to go pick up my kids from seminary this morning because time stood still while I was in that flow state writing. Well, that's the point. Your consciousness did not follow, but obviously your body got itself up to the top of the rock. And so, so the notion of simultaneity, if you will, uh, is, I think, uh, is important in trying to hook these things up that our consciousness then, and this is a critical aspect of the Sufi quest for higher consciousness, which is if we attain higher consciousness, it's not like we, we are, that we're not still in lower levels of existence but that that our consciousness has moved into another realm and so it's not like we're in one or we're not in one and i i wonder if paul is trying to tell us saying whether in the body or out of the body i do not know and i, I don't think he seems uh, you know really concerned about having to know uh he says okay god knows i don't need to know so i'm not going to try to worry a lot about this but i know that it was somewhere else so um, good. And I think that, uh, you know, is he in a cosmological reality or is he in a, a paradigm for spiritual self-assessment? Uh, in other words, is this third heaven 
a, a cosmological reality or is this a symbolic presentation that allows him to say, what, what is this other, if quote-unquote, place uh, that, that I can be in? Why, why am I not there all the time? And is this to teach me something about myself? And so it's, I'm, I'm receiving it, the information about it in a way that I can maybe process symbolically or in some other way, or I hear voices or I engage with what I believe are persons. Am I, am I caught up uh, into, uh, is what I'm seeing what really is there? Or am I now in a higher state of consciousness and I don't need to worry about what is actually there? In other words, do I need to come back no. And tell everybody all the specifics of where I was. Not at all. Or do is that not a concern? The fact that I was there is the self-realization that I can exist without my ego. I think that's kind of what you're telling me here is that this state allows, it's egoless. And as a result, maybe your your soul is helping you to perceive that you are not an ego self, that your your yourself is beyond that and can exist in so speak consciously in many realms of reality so uh that begs the question if you say third heaven is this a confirmation of the, the lds doctrine of three degrees of glory which is also tied to other writings of paul right first corinthians 15 talks about glory of the sun glory of the moon etc and it is is in other words is the discussion of the three degrees of glory the discussion of a cosmological reality, that there are actually three places and that they are, that the description of them as sun, moon, and stars is a literal description. And if one our soul ends up in one of those particular kingdoms, that all of the souls of that kingdom will experience that cosmological reality identically. In other words, it is a, it is a literal place. Or are these attempts to help us to understand that there are degrees of glory and that degrees of glory can be understood by the principles by which we live? That's DNC 76 for me, where, you know, people who abide by a telestial glory are people who live a certain way or want to live a certain way. And I think it mentions things like adulterers and liars, if I, if I remember that correctly. And... So that's the great question, isn't it? Uh, do we take this literally in our religious approach? It is a cosmological reality, exactly as it's described, or is this a place beyond words, but we live according to the consciousness of our soul and its purity? Now, that would be the Sufi way of looking at it, which is we don't, we don't experience this world the same. Why should we be experiencing a higher realm the same? It has to be experienced through my soul. Uh, or is there, should there be an insistence that it is identical for everybody? We will all see and feel the same things. And I'm going, well, we don't even do that here. Why would we do it there? I don't, I, so I just thought I would put that out there because to me, it's a revelation of whether we're going to be literalists or whether we're going to allow the spirit, to our soul, to work through this consciousness and come to its, its understanding as we would in real life, that is, through its experiences. It, you know, to me, I feel like I've already answered this question because I know from my experience reading and, you know, in different sources and different traditions and philosophy and religion in East, West, you know, North, South, East, West, that these, that these realities that we speak of, um, they do not seem to be literal to me and they do they do often get talked about in terms of or written about in terms of seven in terms of three these are symbolic numbers the one thing that i note about both of them is that neither one of them is two right there's the the dichotomy right the dualism you mean heaven or hell it, right it's not binary right so there's that right that stands out to me and then you know the idea that you know, Paul himself is, I just, I know his context. I know he's in a context where, well, again, it, things can be talked about in terms of three, but when it comes to the sun, the moon, and the stars, that those are three out of seven heavenly bodies that people in his time and place knew. 
and they knew them only by the naked eye, and they were listed in, in order of brightness as perceived by the naked eye. So they have nothing to do with what we see in the telescope, right? What we see in the telescope is we know the actual order of these celestial bodies, and we know, we know them not by brightness, but by where they are, right? Assuming that we're correct, and, and we do, at least we're looking for them in that way. We're looking for what is the order in space of these objects uh, versus what do we perceive with the naked eye? And so we use the aid of the telescope in this endeavor. And that's just not Paul's context, right? So he can talk about these three degrees of glory, as it were, and compare them to the sun, the moon, and the stars, because that's what his naked eye sees in order of brightness. And yet I don't have to assume that he doesn't know the other four that that are part of his cosmology, the cosmology of his day and age. And I remember that in the verse before, not here in in this letter, but where where he where it comes up, where the proof text is, I'm calling I'm calling it a proof text for Latter Day Saints of three degrees of glory. Right before that, he had spoken of four, um, not degrees, but four levels of being. Right in terms of the hierarchy of being, and there are more than four, just like there are more than three celestial bodies. Right, and I know that when in making that comparison between the four. Between the four levels of being, right, and between the celestial bodies, that that's a dichotomy and that most of what he was doing is he was actually spelling out a dichotomy over and over, example after example. And that was just one example of a dichotomy because he's distinguishing between heavenly and between earthly. That's yeah. all he was doing. And what, what, and what have you got to work with? The mind and the senses. And those aren't heavenly i don't believe there are heavenly senses but we use funny names for them in the pearl of great price moses is uh, recorded saying i saw with my spiritual eyes and when you use language like that i'm going okay that just escaped uh actual stars and planets and degrees of brightness or anything else because this is something that cannot be perceived with the natural senses and i i think that you're, you're making that point is is a, a very uh, important one and making the point which i hear from you which is why three why seven is that all there are and sometimes we say well he said three so that's all there are and i'm going well that's not what the text says now i'm, I'm just play a little game here real quick with uh with uh, kind of this perception of uh, binaries, like dichotomies, right, dividing into twos or binaries. If you go to uh, uh, the Book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, <coughs> um, setting aside questions we might have about uh, the provenance of the Book of Abraham and its translation, etc. But if we if we go to that text in the Pearl of Great Price, there's a part where uh, Abraham is told that uh, the... Um, uh, if there are two intelligences, one will be higher, and then another one will be higher than them, and so on until we come to God, where he says, I, the Lord thy God, am the greatest of all. One will be greater, I think he calls it. I used higher, but I think greater is what it's saying. Well, what that really says to me is no two things are equal, right? The, the binary is, a, is an inher- a binary view is an inherently flawed view. Why? Because there are no binaries. You can't, you can't, if you, if you bring a group of people together and we were somehow able to rank whatever we're calling intelligence in that, in that verse, if we were able to rank them, we'd find that nobody is the same. There are no two people that are the same, which to me suggests there are as many so-called heavens as there are souls. And as Rumi put it, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. That's it. I think there are as many uh, Mormons as there are, or there's many Mormonisms as there are Mormons. Well, yes, the, there's this idea of cafeteria Mormonism. Have you heard this term, cafeteria Mormonism? Yes, yeah. The reality, yeah. I think, is that there's nothing but cafeteria Mormonism because we each have our own Mormonism. And so when someone talks to me about that, well, that sounds like cafeteria Mormonism to me, and I go, it's it's what I'm trying to figure out. I. I don't think of myself selecting. Cafeteria Mormonism to me is when a person selects things. It can happen in any faith. They select the things that they want to hear and they reject the things that they don't want to hear. 
And uh, the ego is capable of doing all sorts of miraculous uh, bait and switches with itself. You know, we can, we can fool ourselves and think. For the Sufi, the idea is I need to penetrate further into my soul then because my soul will not deceive me. It already understands, you know, what we might call truth in that sense. The question is, am I serious or am I hypocritical? And, and, and so for me, the challenge with, that I get when I hear about cafeteria Mormonism is one Latter-day Saint is telling another Latter-day Saint, you can't do what you're doing because I'm going to call you a cafeteria Mormon. And that's, that's a power relationship. That's not, it, you need to agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, you're a cafeteria Mormon. Right. That's power structuring. That's boundary maintenance. That has nothing to do with spirituality whatsoever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, someone once told me, well, you know, w inquired about being a Mormon. I go, which Mormon would you want me to be? Uh, Joseph Smith in 1820, uh, first vision time. Do you want me to be Joseph Smith in 1830? Do you want me to be a Kirtland uh, Latter-day Saint when different practices were held? Uh, I've been through at least four major changes to the endowment in my own life. Uh, which one of those is my endowment? Is the endowment the same? Does it matter? Does, it, does this really matter? In other words, it's an unfolding reality. There is no real cafeteria. There is the cafeteria of hypocrisy, but Mormonism itself is changing regularly. In other words, I guess I suppose I could. I don't mean this, and I'm not saying it, but I, I suppose I could say, well, President Nelson has created his own cafeteria, and that's his tenure as the president of the church. He's saying as the president of the church, I'm going to put the salad bar over there, and I don't like these desserts anymore. Uh you know, I could be cynical, I suppose. I, I try not to be. That's not, in, I, 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 I'm not interested in that. But I, I suppose that any member of general authorities or otherwise could be accused of being a cafeteria Mormon simply because they introduce a personal perspective or emphasis or there are changes to the liturgy or changes to the structure of the scriptures. You know, and uh, so I, to me, that's a it's a vain sort of quest and a power structure. But well, uh, we're talking about Mormonism here, and even calling ourselves Mormons or being called Mormons is something that has happened on again, off again since the beginning, right? Since Joseph Smith, and we had Meet the Mormons and Mormons.org and or Mormon.org um, with the last president of the church, and now we have that uh, the church should not be called Mormon. Perhaps we can transition away from more metaphysical considerations into a discussion of how Sufis use this in practice. I'd like to just go into a Sufi discussion here for a little bit and, and talk about the fact that within the Sufi tradition, we, we believe in numerous worlds, alam, um, we, we call them realms sometimes, or worlds, harkens back to the idea of, uh, of creation. Um, there is, you know, that the, the, uh, the world has to be created before the earth can be created. And certainly there's language in our own ritual that suggests that world isn't necessarily earth, a planet earth. And so uh, as we trace that language of creation, maybe this word world is trying to get at something else. Right, and you know, when it comes to world in the scriptures, at least in our in our canon, right, it comes from the Greek cosmos. Cosmos means order, right? We can call that a world. When the Romans said they were ruling the whole world, well, they mean that that there's this order that they've established, right? And and by the way, they they know about parts of the world that they don't rule, and they're still saying they rule the whole world, right? They're, partly that's propaganda. Partly it's we're talking about an order of things where there is that order of things. And that's all we're saying, right? And so I, I wonder too, you know, I know that we speak in our tradition of worlds without end. I know that in the Islamic tradition, God is the creator of not of the world, but of worlds. And that the same word that we're talking about here in, in Arabic, alam is used. And so I wonder how many worlds are there? And then again, I don't because I'm not going to take it literally and I'm interested in what these seven worlds you're going to tell me about, uh, I, I assume uh, seven or maybe it's three, have to teach me about 
some kind of spiritual reality, not some kind of physical reality, but uh, or material reality, but a spiritual reality. And the relationship between what we might think of as a physical reality uh, and a spiritual reality is um, a specific point of practice for Sufis. In fact, with my own students, I often will um, ask them to participate in meditations that are intended to allow them to have an experience with the imaginal realm. And uh, bear in mind, again, the imaginal realm is not necessarily an imaginary realm. I'm familiar with these, some of these realms. And I know that I noticed you said the imaginal realm, not the imaginary realm. Although you did relate it to imagination, I think we can relate the imaginal to the imagination, but that doesn't make it imaginary. Despite the conversation we just had, I guess, right, we're pushing up against. So these concepts, they just don't map to some kind of physical reality in any way that I can make sense of. By the way, if they did, maybe they do, but I can't make sense of it. And it doesn't help me even to try. It just doesn't do anything for me. As a Sufi, I tend to think of uh, imagination as a spiritual faculty. I'm not talking about daydreaming or losing track of what I'm thinking or where I'm at. Instead, that the active imagination, Ibn al-Arabi and many other prominent Sufis have written about this extensively, that they understand that uh, the imagination is a spiritual gift if it is used to promote spiritual progress. I want to take a moment here and, and hook up the way in which I see in my own life the connection between the realm of corporeal bodies and the imaginal realm, the one in which my imagination becomes a spiritual faculty to present to me truths that I need to learn to make spiritual progress, but uh, which are... Uh, products of this other realm in symbolic form, in this case in a visionary form. Uh, in 2004, my wife and I lived in, in Cairo, Egypt. It was a wonderful experience. We are studying and researching. And uh, at the, toward the end of our stay, we invited our family to come over and to tour Egypt and to be able to see what Egypt is about, what the country offers, both as tourists and with real experiences, to take them to religious places, mosques, etc., as well as to the archaeological and other sites and museums. So uh, my children came over, and my father came over with his wife. He'd remarried since my mother died. And a niece of mine came over, and together we began our tour. We started in the Cairo area, and uh, in that particular place, uh, we wanted to. I wanted to make sure that, of course, they got to see the Great Pyramids of Giza, as we call them, and, and also uh, traveled to Saqqara, Memphis. And I'd arranged with some drivers to take us there. And we were waiting in the morning. Uh, everybody was busy getting ready, and it's a little chaotic, as family preparations uh, often are. And uh, I was on the lookout for the drivers I'd arranged for, one named Mr. Ahmed, who was uh, my regular driver in Egypt that I hired to take take me places outside of the city or to special locations. And the other uh, was his friend that he'd brought along. And I saw them uh, waiting down there, and I thought, uh, I better go finalize our plans. So I told my family to come down when they were ready. And I went down to talk to Mr. Ahmed. He called me Mr. David. But uh, as we were, as I was there beginning to explain to him uh, this, uh, you know, our schedule and what my intentions were, I heard someone speaking I suppose, behind me. And I hadn't noticed anybody before, but I turned around and there was a beggar there. He was oh, probably 10 or 12 inches shorter than me. And, and at first I wasn't sure who I was looking at or what I was looking at, but uh, he had uh, matted hair with leaves in it from sleeping outside. And his galabea, his, uh, his uh, particular, uh, you know, this sort of shirt robe that they wear was torn and, and dirty. And, and he had sores on his feet and and uh, he said something to me, and I couldn't understand it. And as I looked at him, I, I saw that he was a, physically a mute. His tongue was stunted and deformed. And so he just held his hand out to me, and I realized, oh, he, he, he needs me to give him something. So um, I 
reached in my pocket and pulled out a bill, and it happened to be a 20-guinea bill. I didn't even hardly look at it. I don't. In fact, at that time, I probably didn't take notice of the denomination, but gave it to him and pronounced a brief blessing, something like, you know, Barakat Allahu Alaik or something. Um, but my point, I suppose, was then I turned to what I thought was the important business. And then I heard him try to speak again. And I, so I turned around and looked at him, and he'd held this bill up to the heavens, and he was saying, Allah, Allah, as an expression of gratitude. And it dawned on me that the beggars in Cairo are not used to receiving pounds, Egyptian pounds, guinea. They were used to receiving piastres and malims, the uh, subdivisions of the guinea, which... Uh, a piastre at that time might have been worth, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, a little over three, a third of a cent each. And that I had just handed him what had to be a rather unexpected uh, uh, gift. And as I looked at him, I realized the depth of that gratitude, and I was moved by it. And he, he came over to me and, and reached up and took my hand, uh, my head in his hands, and brought my forehead down to him, and he kissed me on the forehead. And that's when the vision happened. Again, moving out of time, moving out of space, I found myself in the imaginal realm, where I was unable to identify anything specifically. There was very little to hold on to in terms of, of information. It was, uh, how would I say, parsimonious with its symbolism. Uh, a paucity of communication, just what was necessary and, and nothing more. And uh, I could sense that there were colors out there someplace that I seemed to be seeing and, and perhaps some light. But I was alone, radically alone. And that's, that's a terrible feeling to have, uh, loneliness of that kind. And I was standing... In, in a situation where I knew I was being evaluated, perhaps judged. And it, it made me very uneasy because I knew at that moment that whatever I would say was no excuse, whatever I would offer was paltry, that uh, my faults were obvious, they were numerous, they were continuous, and that uh, if I'd made spiritual progress, it was in sort of fits and starts, rather than a, a steady a steady amount of progress as I, I would rather have been doing. And, and I just knew that whatever was about to happen was not going to go well for me. In fact, one of my great fears is that when I've been told uh, in my church experience that we are to measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ, that I feel a sense of dread and, and doom, uh, not of hope, because I, I, I know I'll never meet that standard. It's almost as if my life was over before it began. It was a failure from the beginning. And I, I've since learned through spiritual quests and things to, to understand that I will be judged as myself uh, and, and that I'm not going to be compared to an unrealistic standard. And in another episode, we can go into that. But uh, right now, focusing on the fact of feeling alone, and then I heard a voice I don't know. God, angel, I don't know. But uh, sort of, you know, just disembodied out there someplace. It said, will no one stand forth and speak for this man? And then I really knew I was over because I was convinced I was alone. But I heard from behind me a man speak. And he came up and stood right beside me. And it was this beggar. And his hair was, was arranged in a way that he felt comfortable with. Uh, and no leaves in it. And, and the dirt and the, the sores were gone. And his galabia was clean and, and, and presentable. And, and uh, he, his tongue was restored. He had his speech back. And he said in a clear voice, I will speak for this man. I will speak for my friend. 
And the spiritual truth that I got out of it that time, and I think there are many more, and the experience doesn't end there, but the spiritual truth that I needed to hear, me personally, is that I needed to be in the business of making friends. I needed to, to move into relationships that would support and sustain me and I would support and sustain my friends. That I was willing to stand forth with them and accept with them whatever evaluation or judgment might be made. To me, that's what the baptismal covenant means when it says mourn with those who mourn and that we bear one another's burdens. And uh, to me, it has to be when it hurts, not when it's convenient. And, and so I, I want to make friends. Uh, I know when I taught my university students about the Middle East and, and Islamic civilization, I, I would often, in this post-911 world, they would have a really skewed and, and, and unfortunate view of Islam and Muslims. Uh, often an exceptionally uninformed view, but uh, it's what they inherited. It's what they were taught. And uh, I would often say, look, there, let's suppose there's a billion and a half Muslims in the world. That means you can have a billion and a half friends or you can keep working at making a billion and a half enemies. And I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to be a lot better off in the world if I'm making friends than if I'm making enemies. And a billion and a half enemies just doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. So why don't you think about how you would like to engage with these people? Because if 911 showed anything, it showed they're not going anywhere in terms of their most radical elements. And that m most Muslims would like to deal with those radical elements. They're not fond of them either. And that we can become friends and join together in purpose. And I know this might sound a little naive uh, in light of some of the conditions in the world today, but I, I think nevertheless it is a spiritual path that I can pursue and uh, that I can embrace. Joseph Smith, uh, I probably paraphrase this a little bit, but I think it's mostly a quotation, said, More, uh, friendship is a grand fundamental principle of Mormonism. It is designed to cause wars and contentions to cease and men and women to become uh, friends, brothers, sisters, all people. And that it is a time-honored adage that love begets love. And that last part really sticks with me. Love begets love. Love is born out of being loved first. Back to the epistles of John in the New Testament, First John. We love God because he loved us first. God didn't wait around for us to figure it out. He said, I'm going to love, and that way you'll know what love is. I'm helping you. And so the notion here of, of love begetting love means that I need to be the first to move. And some people say, well, when Muslims do this or then they handle their own or whatever, then maybe I'll think about being their friend. And I'm going, well, I don't think that that's the message. I need to be the mover. I need to be a friend maker. And, and uh, it's part of my spiritual mission to do that, uh, not to make enemies. So... I think that that illustrates this movement from one realm to the other. And that's what I brought back with me is I better be in the business of making friends. Sufis sometimes call this the arc of ascent and descent. We move from a lower world or realm into a higher one. And then we try to bring back to us into this lower realm what we have learned and have it impact us. And so this idea of ascension and dissension is very important to spiritual progress and that imaginal realm is a key to opening it and that's why i often assign imaginal meditations to my students to begin to flex that spiritual imagination muscle just a little bit more and obviously i'm going to conclude that the literalist is going to be stuck in the world of corporeal bodies and literal interpretations and as paul said in a previous episode we covered this the letter kills the spirit gives life so I think I'll conclude with that anecdote and thank you, my friend, Abdel Haq, for all that you do for me and all the sharing you have uh, given to me and the benefit that you have been in my life. May you take what we've talked about into your spiritual practices, and we can work on that individually later. And uh, so thank you once again, my friend. Thank you for sharing that, friend. Until next week.
Thank you for listening to Latter-day Contemplation Presents Come Follow Me. Once again, I'm your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. Please also consider listening to Latter-day Peace Studies' other podcasts I co-host, Latter-day Contemplation, offering a contemplative approach to discipleship, and Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me, offering nonviolent historical critical exegesis of Latter-day Saint scripture at www.latterdaypeacestudies.org. Once again, I'm Dr. David Peck. Please also consider listening to my other podcast of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic, offering Sufi meditations and commentary through my The Truth of Jesus is Himself series at www.daviddpeck.com. Thank you for co-hosting this podcast with me, Sheikh Daoud. Thanks also to Latter-day Peace Studies all-volunteer team for editing, publishing, and promoting this podcast on social media. Finally, thanks to our audience for listening and responding to this podcast and for donating to Latter-day Peace Studies, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. All of your donations are tax-deductible and go toward producing, publishing, and distributing content. And thank you for co-hosting this podcast with me, Abdelhop. Till next week.